If you've been thinking about entering into the real estate market and building a real estate business, this is the conversation for you. I talked to Joe Rocky Jr. and he shares his experience developing the mindset required for real estate, as well as tips of the trade and things to look out for in the next two to three years as a real estate investor. If that interests you, have a listen. Welcome to Reinventing Perspectives. Today we have an amazing guest. We have Joe Rocky here. I like the way you described yourself. I'm just going to quote it. You said, a business creator who has made countless opportunities happen. Phenomenal. I'm so excited to have you and so honored to have you here, Joe. Please let us know who you are and what you're about. Well, thank you. I'm Joe Rocky and what I've been doing here professionally for the last 11 years, I've been creating real estate companies here in the Pittsburgh area. And essentially we create revenue through one of three main ways. We either do a traditional flip, you know, that's going to be the kind of stuff that you can see on TV, buy a house, fix it up, sell it. We do investment grade properties that we sell to other realtors that want to be either landlords or flippers, but don't have enough time to go through the properties. And then we also do rent to owns and the rent to own formula that we have done has really opened up doors for a lot of people who probably wouldn't have been able to purchase their own property, uh, but now can. So those are the three main ways we've done it. And as I said, I create opportunities for people because I recognize in all of that stuff, there's a lot of it that I am good at, but there's certainly a lot of it that I'm not. And I just partner up with people who like to do the stuff that I'm not good at and don't want to do. And that's how we create opportunities for people, some of which I've never even met in person. Uh, but you know, that's the fun part of the economy, checks cash anywhere. So I can mail them their proceeds and everyone benefit from it. And that's really what we try to design from the first place was to create a system really is what it is that every person involved from the client to the neighbors, to my partners, every single person involved is better off for us having arrived and originally purchased this property in the first place. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, since you talked about property flipping, is it as stressful as it looks on television? It depends. <laughs> when I first started, it was more. At this point, it's not. So obviously, COVID has made things a lot more expensive, and that's what can get problems. I think the first part of what makes it stressful is the people involved. The worst ones I've ever had is when I've had the worst people involved in terms of the wrong crew and them just being not up to the caliber, not necessarily of the craftsmanship, but of their way of dealing with themselves and their crew. That's been when it's falling apart the most. So, but yeah, certainly, I mean, every single time you do a flip, there's a timetable crunch and that inherently creates stress because every market has its own buy season. So you got to get it in time for that. You normally have an expensive loan on your property. So every day longer you take with that is literally money out of your profit margin. And then not to mention that if you take way too long, buyer attitudes change very quickly, you know, in the span of a season or so. So what you could have would be perfectly set up for 2017 doesn't even apply now in 22. And that's, you know, five years later. So, you know, if you did a flip, you think, oh, we didn't get it in time. We're going to put a rental in there in a couple of years. We're going to sell it. It might be out of date. So uh, that's all things that can make this incredibly stressful, but normally the biggest stress is the people you're with. What do you say to the person who watches those flipping shows and watches the real estate shows? And it's like, well, that looks like something that I would like to get into. How to go about it, what you should be prepared for if you want to go into that business. Yeah, so there's a lot of elements that I think that the TV shows kind of uh, 
ignore and now i got talking generalities here because i don't follow them all but first and foremost you're not getting paid per episode to be on tv so if your only source of income is this property that's a wildly different amount of pressure upon the performance than it is being on tv where you're getting a check regardless and that element by itself is foreign to the majority of this population because most people in this country will never take a commission only job where you're only paid based upon your performance and whether you show up or not no one cares so that by itself is a daunting task for the majority of people out there so overcoming that is is certainly important because that does make it harder because that's a mindset change that is fundamental and requires a ton of discipline in terms of your savings in terms of being able to manage a fiscal budget and then the other part of it is you need to be able to see things before they happen and what they should be that is also a mindset thing that some people just can do and some people can't i don't know how to teach it i'm blessed to have it i can look at emptiness and know what it's going to be before it's there and kind of see how it will go. What a lot of people don't have that ability. So when a contractor says, hey, I'm at 90% down the road and reality it's 37%, most people can't tell the difference. And then that's how you get yourself into trouble. You overpay your contract throughout the way. He thinks that that's now essentially the monthly rate. He draws it out he then realizes because reality is only 37% done. It then takes an extra three months and you're going to have this giant fight at the end about why he shouldn't be getting paid the last month because you paid them too early, essentially. So all of those end up being problems. There's lots of ways, like I say, it can mess up. And that's even before we start discussing things like a recession where everything at Home Depot and Lowe's costs way more than it should. This is so interesting, Jess. <laughs> Thank you for coming on and talking about this. I like that uh, you talked no about the mindset shift. How did you work on getting that mindset shift? Well, fortunately, I was always in it. So mm. from the time that I was going to select a college, I kind of had this mindset that I need to have skills. I need to have skills that businesses would need. So I essentially looked at it and said, every business needs to know where their money is. Long story short, that's what accounting is. Every business needs to know how to get more money. Well, one of the ways they do that is finance. You actually can teach finance. But in my opinion, you have to experience sales. You have to do it. So every job I had throughout college was sales commission based. So I never really had the paycheck hour to hour thing aside from a couple one-off jobs here and there, but the majority of my life has been doing sales. And I've had really bad sales teacher for the first half of that. I basically saw what not to do in a lot of ways. That's why I really don't do pressure sales. I don't really try to put emphasis on the problems that people have. Sure, I point out you need to do something. I think there's a difference between pointing out that you need to do something, whether it's with me or not, versus ripping someone else down. So that's part of how I do my sales. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it just comes down to, I had that mindset because I didn't have a choice. I, I've always put myself there economically from that standpoint. And part of it was that I knew, maybe knew is the wrong word, I had the wrong perception or at least a different perception of what entering a corporate workforce would be. In my mind, the only way I would get paid more would be playing the politics game and climbing up the ladder. And I'm not really built for that because I know that as soon as I see something wrong, I will point it out, point out, point it out. And that's not the kind of people that ultimately get promoted because most people want yes men underneath them, which is a horrible fact, but it's true. And at the end of the day, I knew that. So it then became 
looking for my first true career out of college was something promised you're going to build your own business. Didn't really come out that way. And that's how I ended up creating my own without any structure around me, just going from scratch. I think if you had had a taste of that, you know, salary paycheck to paycheck, then that definitely would require a lot of work to switch that mindset. But Mm -hmm. it's a a lot of really great advice. I like that you talked about sales. Early entrepreneurs, if you don't have that background of selling, which a lot of people don't have, one, how do you sell better? And how do you kind of push yourself in that way? If you don't know how to sell, well, first off, it's going to be a much more expensive process overall for your business because the most expensive employees you should have should be your salespeople. Because if there's not new revenue coming in the door, you don't have a business. So essentially uh, turning off your sales force is essentially like slowing down your own heart of your body. Blood can't get around, your body ain't going to work. If you don't have the ability you need to get someone in there who can and they are expensive. A good salesperson and a good sales manager should be expensive. Just we're talking at least 50%. So very expensive. As a result, it's going to be more profitable for you in the long run to find a good sales coach, find a trainer who can do that. Uh, For me personally around here, his name was Dan Hudock. He's part of Sandler. That's a franchise that is a sales training franchise. First off, I already knew I was doing things wrong. I could just see that from living it. But they taught me uh, kind of the science behind why it was wrong and really how to do things correctly. I mean, it took three years to kind of really truly eliminate all of my bad habits and implement good habits. That's what I would recommend is just accept the fact that you're going to, have to spend a lot of money on a good sales team and learn how to do it yourself to build your own sales team. Because if you're living through the mindset of how much is it going to cost to make money, you're going to ultimately mess yourself up anyway. A good sales team should ultimately be constantly pushing the rest of your company to grow, to be able to keep up with them. And when you get to the point that you're easily maintaining your sales team, either A, you must be a very mature business that is in a very stable environment like Ford, or your sales team has slowed down and you need to grow your sales team and or improve it in some capacity. So if we're talking about the startup world, that's really what you need to go to. And I would always build things from a structure of building a business standpoint of two degrees larger than you really want it to be. So if you're producing something and you think that, you know, we're going to make a good profit if we can make 8,000 of these, well, make it in the beginning that you're going to build 10,000 of them and then push your people to get there. Because ultimately, you know, you're making profit per sale. You got 2,000 more sales. Life's going to be better. That's a really great way of thinking about it. And I like that you highlighted that one of the first things that you're going to need is probably that sales training and that sales coach, because that mm-hmm. is where especially new businesses die. Great product, yes. a person who maybe is a technician, great thinking behind it, but in the sales. On that note, a lot of people mess up because they have this theory that the best bakery that stays around is the one who has the best donuts. In reality, it's the one who has the most sales. Mm-hmm. So people just have this assumption if I had the best product ever, people would figure it out. That's not really how life works. And, and that's part of sales of what you need to do. That being said, if you're going to spend money on sales or marketing, spend more on the sales. Mm-hmm. So I didn't mean to cut off your flow, but that's, <laughs> that's an important differentiation. No, that's, that was worth saying. So thank you for saying that. I saw this and I said, this is so interesting about you. In 2019, Joe finished 192nd in the International Axe Throwing Federation Championships in Toronto. Mm-hmm. First, I was like, how did you get into that? <laughs> well, um, there's a company here in Pittsburgh that does axe throwing. Mm-hmm. So we were there for my brother's birthday. 
probably in 17-ish, something like that. And me and my friend who did it, we ended up looking at the national results, seeing what we had just done with zero training whatsoever and seeing what, at the time, the best people in the world were doing. And we basically both just said, if we actually sat down and prepared for this and went all in, we could do it. So we ended up eventually joining a league. And we just started practicing. His looks are short. I own now probably about 40 axes just because <laughs> I changed my mind way too much about what I want to do. He settled in and became very, very consistent. And uh, actually, earlier this year, um, he won Worlds. So wow. uh, he, he stuck with it much better than I did. Partly because he has a personality that will listen, be consistently with something. And I am constantly tinkering. So th that's its own little drawback. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it was just we did a lot of reps. And you know we just kept winning. <laughs> and then eventually we ended up there. <laughs> we ended up in Toronto. Yeah. Do you not have to explain to people why you have so many exes in your home? <laughs> I, well, my wife's into it, so it, there's a lot less explaining that's necessary. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I got them all in a bag. Um, half of them travel with me in my car at any given time. So, yeah. Joe, just to let the audience really gain a lot from your expertise, for someone who doesn't know anything about real estate, where would you begin? I, I guess the first spot would be you'd have to know what you want to accomplish because there are two fundamental different routes you can go in the real estate world. You can go for the quick hit, big money, in theory, flip route, or you can go for the sustained over the long haul building up equity route, which is the rental. So that's really the first starting. When I started, I went 100% out of my other business, had no other stream of revenue. I knew rentals were what I ultimately wanted, but I had to start with flips really to build up enough capital to be able to purchase the flips and to sit on them and all, all of that fun stuff. You need to have that mindset of what is it that you need both today and then what is your long run goal? Because there are some people that only do flips. They just keep making the big money, making the big money. But my problem with that and the reason I ended up turning down the flip market and turning up the rental side is because I want to be able to say, you know what, I'm done, but still get paid for all the work I've done for the last 10 years. And that's a large rental portfolio will do for you. Um, you'll be able to just say, I don't want to do anything for the next four months and not. Now, for me, that means I'd be doing other businesses, but for someone else, that might mean you go to Orlando or you, know, you go on a cruise or whatever. And those are all the upsides that can come with it if you build a structure correctly, which is very doable, but it's very hard and takes a lot of process to get there. Discipline is the most important part of really this, this whole creating a business entity, whether it's real estate or not. You have to have the discipline to stay true to your budget the discipline to self-evaluate yourself and say, what are we doing well and what are we not? And really that, that can be a truly humbling experience. You know, I, I know up front, there's way too much in the sales process for me to be good at all of it. I, I don't think that anyone has a personality that can truly do it all because I think it's so diverse in terms of just the three major categories of getting prospects in front of you, convincing the prospect to purchase your good and then delivering on the good. Those are three distinct, different skill sets. And very few people have the personality to do all of it. I know I'm horrible on the prospecting side. That's why I have partners who love to be on the internet and fill my calendar. 
uh, which is great because most of them don't ever want to see someone in real life. They just want to <laughs> sit behind a computer. So it's a really good match. And then the product itself is you know, what we ultimately end up purchasing. So for me, we, we created a system for it and a structure for it. And I think that that's really kind of what we're at. And then just for people who are like me that want to just immediately build something and then kind of overestimate the small details, you, you need to have someone there that will analyze it. And on the converse, I've had many partners that only want to sit back and read every book in the world and never actually do anything. You need to have someone that's just going to cause you to create momentum. Because while knowledge is certainly important and vital, you're really going to learn from your own failures. Now, when you're looking at properties, what makes a property worth buying for you? For me, it's really the numbers. In a pre-COVID world is how I've been describing this, is I would be in 20 to 30 new properties a week. Just constantly meeting new people who want to sell their house. And yes, there are just some fundamental red flags. I will not buy this house no matter what. Uh, in Pittsburgh, it's a very hilly environment because of all of our rivers. It created a lot of hills. And most of our houses are well over 100 years old. So with that being said, you need to know how to judge a foundation. So if the foundation is messed up, I flat out just will not buy that house. But... The majority of reasons why I would buy a house is the person I'm buying it from and the numbers. If it's going to be a situation where we can make this work, yes. If it's not, not. And flat out, there's some people that we're willing to be a little more flexible with. And there's some people I just never want to see again. So their house gets eliminated by default. And again, when you're going through that many new properties a week, you can be selective. I know I'm only going to buy one and a half to three properties a month, and I'm looking at almost 80 to 100, I can really be selective for what that one to three properties I want are. So that's really part of it is it's just, I do so much volume. And you know when we put out offers, they obviously are very aggressive on my part, but I know I only need 3%, 1% on the land. So I'm able to be aggressive. And then that being said, over the last 11 years of only doing this type of thing, I got a lot better. So I do a lot better than just 3% while still being aggressive. And that's why we have a surplus that we can sell to other investors that don't have the time to spend this day you know, out there looking at new properties. Because there are, unfortunately, in the world of, of rentals in particularly, there's a lot of people that have normal everyday jobs and treat being a landlord as a hobby. Like, I'll just buy this property. I'll have someone pay off the mortgage for me, and then eventually we'll figure out what's down the road. And every month I'll make 200 bucks along the way, which is fine if you know how to be a landlord and you can develop that system. Being a lawyer, being a doctor, being whatever high salary person that can get you a big expensive loan is great. But that doesn't mean you know how to be a landlord. But that being said, people still want to try. I don't ever fault someone for trying, but there's certainly a, a skill set that you need to know. And it really does come da down to judging people. No matter how much society says you shouldn't, you really do need to know how to judge people and do it correctly. What do you suggest to that person who probably had that idea of like, oh, maybe I'm just going to get a loan and get a property and continue with my job, the landlord? What would you say is the best situation? 
get a partner who knows how to be a landlord um, and then then create a partnership with it. So, you know, you guys can figure out what's percentage of the ownership goes to who, but you need to have a partner who's involved in an equity standpoint. And the reason I say that is because there's all kinds of companies out there that will be property managers for just a straight fee standpoint. And the difference between someone caring about a property that they have an ownership standpoint in versus churning people over for the fee is night and day. And having seen how some of these places work, they normally churn tenants rather than trying to find the right tenant and have them in there for a long period of time. Because the majority of what landlords want, even though they don't know how to articulate this, is they want someone who will be in there for a very long time and they never have to think about the house again. There are ways to get there. I have figured out how to do that. And a lot of other people who are professional landlords have. There is a little bit of of proprietary knowledge. I know what I did, but most of it is just experience and having dealt with people. And again, learning how to judge someone about are they actually lying? What's going to happen? Both in terms of the numbers on their background report and then actually walking through the property and interviewing them. That's good information to know. What are the up and downsides of entering the property market today? With COVID having happened? So yeah, COVID happened. Right now, it really depends upon what state you're in. When the original COVID came out, the federal ban on uh, mortgages happened. So there's no more foreclosures happening. That was put in effect in the very beginning. And then as well as was the eviction. So each state then got to choose when they turned back on evictions. And it kind of went in accordance to the harder you shut down, the longer it took you to allow evictions. And the reason that that's a problem is because, A, no tenant has ever gotten kicked out of a house and left a good house in return. Just doesn't happen. But there's a normal cycle to every local economy. Tenant gets evicted in April. Landlord fixed it up in May. New property here in July to can re-enter the market. Great. That's the system. The problem is we're going to have, in Pennsylvania at least, Two years worth of evictions happening in three months. So when you don't have the capacity to renovate those properties quickly, the supply of those properties for other tenants goes away. And anytime you have, this actually is going to be dramatically increased demand and no supply, prices skyrocket. So for the landlords who have viable and good properties, you can charge whatever you want for them. You can be selective as you want to be. But for the tenant who chose not to pay since March Madness of 19 or 20 or whenever COVID started, you're now done. You will not be able to get a property forever. And by you not paying for two years, you effectively have destroyed your ability to get a property for the foreseeable future. And since, at least in Pennsylvania, every single eviction hearing is on your record for seven years. For the next seven years, if I see anyone who was evicted in 22 or 21, they're automatically off my list, period. Because that means you didn't pay during COVID. You chose not to. Now, I had a ton of tenants that we went to in the very beginning and kind of made a plan for each of them. The majority of them were cool. We figured something out. We figured out a way through COVID. Those guys are great. We'll stick with them forever. But the ones who ran away and hid, we brought the full-fledged hammer down. And it's estimated that nationwide, 40% of the tenants, once they found out they didn't have to pay, just stopped. So if you're a guy who had five units and two of them stopped paying, maybe you can afford to fix up one of them if you have enough sufficient capital 
and the desire, because that's the other part of it, because you've just gone through this trauma, knowing business lost 40% of its revenue, you're probably barely afloat, you walk into a house, it's trash, do you really want to go through this again? So from a landlord perspective, you don't have the money to fix both of them up, so you need to sell one of them, and maybe you don't even want to deal with either. So from the landlord perspective, now we have a ton of broken houses for sale, and half of the people who would have bought them are so emotionally traumatized they don't want to. From the actual value of these properties, they're going to plummet because demand is less and supply is more. So that's going to first affect the landlord area. You know, we're talking about your your lower areas. The places that when you go around your city, that's where the rentals are. That's the place that gets hit first. That's element one. If you're going to be a landlord, this is a great time to buy property throughout the rest of the year in terms of the rentals. Now, for anyone who's trying to buy a house as a normal person, just trying to move to a bigger house or whatever, you're experiencing that prices are dramatically higher. And that's the foreclosure side of the coin. Historically, Bank kicks you out of the house. Some flipper comes, fix it up, makes it a Taj Mahal. Someone goes and buys it. And there's a nice little ample amount of supply as a result of that. But because there's been no foreclosures, because A, they said you weren't allowed to, but B, the courts have been so closed and slowed down, there hasn't been that extra amount of supply that is normally baked into the supply side of the equation. So demand is relatively the same. People using life things. I have another kid. I want to get a bigger house. I want to retire. I want to move to somewhere that's smaller. All of that kind of demand is relatively the same as normal, but we're missing the supply from the foreclosure houses that are should be in the marketplace. So as the end of the day result is, that's why houses are more expensive now. Demand, less supply, boom. Three years from now, uh, two to three years, depending on how quickly they move on the foreclosure processes through the various states, you're going to have the exact opposite. And you're going to have a very known and projectable real estate crash again, because there's a bubble right now. It's 100% happening. Um, It's been happening since COVID began, and it's going to hit the other side of it once people start getting foreclosed upon. Uh, not to mention the fact that the people who are getting foreclosed upon probably are not going to be able to get a loan to be able to buy a new house. So that's going to even decrease the supply when those people enter the market. And you're still going to be dealing with the same residual effects of rents being high. So over the next three years, you're just going to be a movement that's going to say landlords are charging too much and property values are declining. So again, to be a landlord would be incredibly profitable towards that. But this is the direct result of shutting down the courts for two years and telling people they don't have to pay. This is the other side of that coin. You end up paying, you just pay in higher rents two years later. A lot of stuff happening in the real estate market to definitely keep an eye on. Wow, this has been so valuable, Joe. Thank you so much. What is the number one book that you would recommend for an early entrepreneur? I personally really enjoy the four-hour work. I know that there's some people despise that, but (laughs) the reason I like that is because it teaches you upfront how to look at your business from making it as a system. You don't need to be the one who's doing everything. In fact, it's actually better the less you do because... This is true in every facet, which I tell anyone, if you don't have someone who can immediately replace you, you can't get promoted because the boss doesn't want to deal with the hassle of replacing now two jobs, the one you're going into and the one you just had. So people have this mindset that if I have my replacement next to me, I'm screwing myself. I'm basically firing myself. I'm training my replacement. 
but you're training your replacement so that you can go to the next step. So you can either go up this ladder or you can show to some other company that I belong here, but this place is dragging their feet. So I would always recommend that. And that's kind of what part of the four hour work week was, was to recognize that you get a task, you emphasize, you do really good at your company and you bring someone behind you who can do the same thing. Then you can step out of it let that guy take over. And now you go do some other task, some other project to grow your business. And if done successfully, you should be able to step back and watch the whole thing. And if you ever want to stop, well, now you have a self-sustaining business. Um, if you don't want to stop, you keep growing it, build new business, whatever. So to me, that's why I like the four-hour work week. It was all about systems, how to implement them, and, and to keep on them. Thank you for that. So I know you've got a podcast Father and Joe. Mm -hmm. So please tell us what it's about. Sure. So Father and Joe was originally born in 17. So we've been doing it for five years. We come out once a week on Tuesdays. The reason that this podcast was created, I was looking around the world. And for those who remember in 2017 was the beginning of Trump. And basically this entire country decided they either loved or hated each other. And then just drew a line that really hasn't gone away. There was so much problems coming around from these kind of basic things, I looked around and said, well, these aren't new problems to human history. I mean, we have gone through times where we didn't like politicians. We didn't like someone else. So I ended up pairing up with a priest and who has the knowledge of the church behind him. And they've been around for 2000 years dealing with fundamental problems that end up coming down to things like narcissism and envy and stuff like this. And we just look at them and, and look at historically speaking, you know, what is the solution? How should we as individuals deal with this? Because I fundamentally believe that every big picture macro problem is solved by the individual on the micro level. So if you want to fix your industry, fix your own company. And that's the kind of process that I believe. So if you don't like how the society's going, fix yourself, fix your family, and then go from there. And that's really the kind of things that we address. So we obviously address those types of individual type things, but we also do address like really big stuff that none of us can control. Like a crazy man over in Russia just decided to start killing a bunch of people. How should we feel about this? What should we do about it? And then we've done a number of episodes about Putin, uh, just discussing that. There's really not too many things that we have discussed at this point over the span of, of five years of doing this. But every single time we come up with something that's another discussion because it's a thought that hasn't come up. And part of it is is just things that I'm dealing with and certainly had a number of episodes where after I've just fired someone and discussing how that has gone and, and how it should have gone better or things I did right in the process. It's kind of the discussion of why you have a relationship to realize that you are not the end-all be-all and that this is not the first human being or the first wave that this has gone through throughout human history and really to kind of learn from it and to create a stabilizing force within our lives. Uh, that sounds amazing. Now, my last question is always, so what has faith meant to you on your journey? Well, really, I don't think I'd be able to do it without it. Because to, to me, the more you step into trying to live a faith that is essentially designed to become a better person to those around you, the better everything becomes around you. The virtues, for instance, you know, most people realize that it's important to have some courage. It's important that to learn some more. That's prudence. It's important to be a little bit humble every once in a while. Recognize that you don't know everything. And as you try to live that and practice that more, it spills out into every aspect of your life. The point of the, the faith in general is not to just say you're doing everything wrong, you know, just point out all your flaws. It's to say, 
you know, this is how it ought to be done. We recognize that it's hard. I mean, there's no doubt it, it's hard to always be nice to people and to not have anger. Um, I mean, I, it's, it's a thing. Um, there's a lot of temptations and problems out there, but trying to think about what I ought to do in a consistent, systematic way, which is how I really look at faith in, in a nutshell, you know, what did I do right this week? What did I do wrong this week? And it also, like I said, recognizes that you're not the end all be all. Your problems might be significant, but probably are not significant in the grand scheme of things. Looking at that, does the fact that I only got seven likes on tweet really matter? Is what I'm putting out there actually relevant? So to me, that's the kind of things that we try to put in perspective and living faith for me has really done that to try to recognize, you know, does it really matter? Is this really a problem or should we focus on something else? And then as you get that going, it has spurred into the rest of my life, um, obviously including the businesses. Thank you so much for sharing that and sharing your faith journey with us. For more information, freebies, and clips from various episodes, please follow us on Instagram at Reinventing Perspectives or go to our website, www.reinventingperspectives.com. Thank you so much for your time. We absolutely value your time. And even more, we value your feedback. Don't forget to leave us a review. Thank you so much and see you again next week. Mm-hmm.